Good to uh, see all of you. I am uh, coining a new term. Feel free to use it. Uh, Facebook status it. Tweet it. Uh, welcome to January. Uh, that's what I'm calling uh, this month now. Um, anyone just excited? I mean, you walked out the last couple days, man. It's just unbelievable. I know some of you guys rock shorts all year long anyway, um, but for the rest of us, like, it's been kind of refreshing, hasn't it? So beautiful, especially down here on Main, man. Absolutely love it. Uh, tonight is a, a huge, huge night for us. Uh, so, so much uh, to say and so little time to do it, so we might as well just dive uh, right in with this. Uh, seven years of youth ministry experience for uh, me, myself, and I, and every year we would, uh, of course, do the patented uh, youth group mission trip. Now, um, the mission trips in general were always a phenomenal experience, but what they always did was expose my greatest weakness. Um, how many of you guys have remember the old show, Home Improvement, right? By the way, I won't be asking the second service that question, but uh, you guys rem- you know, remember, like, remember Tim the Toolman Taylor, right? Unbelievable dude, unbelievable dude, like, respect a guy a lot. I am his complete opposite, right? Like, I'm like Mark the no-tool, don't know how to use them, Sigma. Like, that's who I am. I don't have many tools. I, if I did have them, I wouldn't know what to do with them. Um, I, I don't consider myself handy. I, I often give it the old college try when something breaks in my home, uh, which normally results in a busted pipe or an injured small child. But, but, it's, but, I, but I, I just go for it anyway. But, but mission trips just expose my weaknesses. And uh, this one particular year, uh, we were all going to go to South Dakota. You guys know where that is, right? Right, just south of North Dakota. And uh, so we were there, and uh, it was kind of a different setup because all of these groups were going to be coming and then they, they send you as a leader out with different students from different youth groups to get to know each other, right? And, uh, and all the leaders had to fill out this questionnaire before we went that kind of assessed our gifts. And it came to the question um, uh, concerning roofing. Now, um, the, the year previous, I had been on a roof job. I was like pretty much, uh, I would hand shingles to the person on the roof. But, but when it came to roofing, I was like, oh, oh yeah, like I have, I have tons of, like I was the shingle handler dude, like... And so I checked a lot of experience to roofing. Now, um, so we get to uh, South Dakota, and um, they give me my team. Uh, it consists of uh, six middle schoolers, uh, five girls, and one boy who had not yet reached puberty. So um, our team wasn't that strong, uh, to say the least. We show up on a work project, and they hand me the folder. And uh, I open it up. I'm really excited. I'm thinking, like, all right, landscaping, you know, a little bit of paint here and there, maybe some cleanup job. Um, okay, we need you to de-shingle the three layers of uh, shingles on the roof, repair the broken uh, plywood or things that are up there, and then re-shingle the whole roof, me and six middle schoolers. Now, um, I, don't, like, so I don't know if you've ever had a moment where, where you, were, you just wanted to run away far and never return. So, so literally, like me and these six middle schoolers, I had never <laughs> done anything before. And, and the other thing, like, they're supposed to send, like, leaders around, kind of, like, checking up on the projects. That didn't happen. So it's literally just me figuring it out, right? So it takes us three days just to de-shingle the thing. We were the only group, the only group that literally worked, like, 13, 14-hour days. We would always come back when everyone else was having fun and, like, worshiping. But it was an unbelievable experience. And, and I can, we left, uh, and the roof got finished. I, I, at one point, fell through the roof. My leg completely exposed in the kitchen of the, like the dude was in the kitchen. And like all of a sudden it was like, whoom, like all the way down. He's like, hey there, you know. Um, 
We left, it hadn't rained. I mean, I gotta be honest, I really doubt that the thing was leak-proof. I mean, I was like just putting the shingles, I did some like cool pattern in. I, people said, that's not what you're supposed to do. I'm like diagonal, anyway. Um, but it was this amazing experience. I remember, though, coming home, completely exhausted, completely exa- worn out. I mean, I, I remember just like, listen, I'm taking a week off from this because it was an incredible experience, but I was ready to pull back. And in fact, like, that's pretty much my mentality with just about every conference or mission trip I've ever been on. Like, like you go away, and all of a sudden you feel incredibly faithful, obedient. And then in your mind, somehow, you convince yourself that you deserve to pull back. As I've thought about it, it's actually raised one of the Christian epidemics. And that's these manic spurts of obedience that are then met with this mentality that we need to relax and pull back. That somehow in those manic, amazing bursts of faithfulness and obedience to the Lord, because of all the awesome things that happen, I mean, God, like, I straight re-roof this with, with six middle school girls, you know, well, five and a kind of, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like God, surely, surely, this is worth something to you. And as much as we communicate out of our mouths that we're not saved by works, how quick are we in great moments of our self-attributed faith think to ourselves that now it's time to sit on the couch for a few days so we can get rejuvenated. Listen, Hebrews 11 has absolutely changed my life. And the reason is, as we've watched these characters unfold and develop, the thing that's been consistent from beginning to end is not manic bouts with obedience, but a lifelong endurance of following the Lord. Yes, failings all over the place, but hearts that were pursuing God and believing that they did not deserve anything. And that's what I feel like is our biggest struggle. We serve God and then think we deserve something, that God owes us something. Now, I told you when we started Hebrews chapter 11, we would be in it 11 weeks. If you've been uh, keeping your uh, math on your uh, little journal there, this is week 11. And my heart is so incredibly full. I've been waiting uh, for this night and this particular text for so long. But I want to quick remind us of where we've been. First of all, if you haven't been with us through this whole journey, if you're like, uh, yeah, that's great. No, tonight's my week one. Listen, it's all good. It, it, like, you'll be able to build within the context of what we're doing here. If you have been here the whole time, it's been a growing process for us. But this is where we started in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, as the writer defines faith. He says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, that it's this this trusting of something that isn't able to be touched per se, but that there's this deep-rooted sense that it's out there, that God is real. Now, I told you on the very first night that there's three categories of faith. Next slide. The first is if this table represents a foundational faith in God, the first is non-existent. And that's some of you here. Like even right now, you're like, I, you, like God and all is nice to say, but I, I have no belief in him. I have no belief that Jesus is more than a prophet or a teacher. So that's some of you. And when we started this journey, all I asked was that you would be honest with where you're at. I asked that again tonight. 
I'm going to be asking you questions all night long. And we need to start off right, and that's with vulnerability and an opportunity just to confess right where you're at. So some of you, non-existent faith. I don't believe. Others of you, your faith is very fragile. Your faith is like this cup that's sitting on the edge of this table. And one slight breeze, life circumstance, something that rocks your world a little bit, a relationship that falls apart, a job that goes away, finances that are crumbling around you, and your faith falls off the table. That's where some of you enter the room. Completely fragile. It's as if anything could ruin this thought that you have of God in your mind. The other category is the tender. The tender kind of faith is a faith that can be shaken. Is a faith where like a friend can come up and say, you're the biggest idiot ever for believing in God. And yet it shakes a little bit, but the foundation of who God is remains the same. The tender are able to go through suffering in life circumstance. The tender are able to be challenged by other religions and not be changed. Because their belief is that God has an unchanging character. And no matter what is happening in the peripheral, no matter what their life entails or what's going on, it doesn't change who God is. And that's some of you. And I would say this, that some of you maybe through this journey of Hebrews 11 have grown from fragile to tender. I pray so, right? So tonight, we land this plane. Uh, This actually will be the biggest segment of text that we'll study, and you're like, how are we going to do this in 50 minutes? I'm not sure, but we're going to go for it, okay? Open your Bibles to Hebrews 11. All of nine verses, we're going to start in verse 32. This is the most poetic section of Hebrews. I want to read it in its entirety just because it is so incredibly beautiful. And then we'll break it down. Hebrews 11, verse 32. You guys there? Sam, there. Thank you so much. Now, let the text and the beauty of it just hit your heart here in verse 32. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might raise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And finally in 39 and 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Agree, disagree. Beautiful text, right? Amazing text. All right, so let's start in verse 32. And I know if you've been journeying with us, you're like, okay, um, so we've been pretty much taking this a character a week. So what's your plan here in verse 32, right? Um, Like, how are we going to get through this in one night? Now, I'm going to approach it just how the writer does. How does he approach it? Like, time would fail me. He's writing this, penning this, inspired by God, and he comes to this point, look, I could go through every character in the Scripture. Like, there are so many powerful examples of faith. And he just comes to this point where he's like, listen, like, it's time to land this plane. 
You get the point. There are so many faithful in the scripture, but we should summarize a little bit. Gideon, 300 men against 135,000. If you guys know the story from Judges, beautiful story. Uh, God tells Gideon and his men, after he weans them down, to grab some torches and pitchers, start making some noise down in the Midianite army. They all end up killing themselves. And so the 300 stand on this mountaintop, and the, mount, and the army down there thinks that each one of those torches represents an entire army, when actually it's just one dude up there with a pitcher making some noise, right? <laughs> all these men up here that you see, Jephthah, a huge warrior that uh, conquers. We see Barak, not to be confused with the current president. This, rather, is a biblical character. 10,000 men conquers a massive army. A Samson, a famous character in the scripture, kills a thousand men with uh, anyone? With a jawbone. That seems somewhat peculiar. And, and Samuel was, was more of a, less of a warrior, per se, and more of a, a voice. His voice was used to warn the Israelites. So his point is like, each of these men faced incredible odds, faced the impossible. And yet all the characters that we've been studying hold similarities with these. God did the impossible, and these men trusted that God would do so. Now, if any of you are like me, I've been a bit discouraged through this journey. If you're like me, you're like trying to find yourself in that list, aren't you? You're like thinking to yourself, all right, if the Bible was still being written today, would my name be listed there? That's at least what I think. Like, would my faith be exemplary? Would I be listed in these faithful men and women that Hebrews 11 has talked about? I, I've had that thought several times. If the Bible were still being written, would I be considered one of the faithful? It caused me to ask, uh, when you were a kid, did you ever want to be a, a superhero? And more, more uh, particularly, which superhero did you want to be when you were a kid? I'm just curious. Just throw out a few here. Superman, all of you, okay. Pardon me? A ninja turtle. That's uh, an action figure, not a superhero. Um, well, for me it was this. Uh, all right. Now, I, I, I dreamed when I was a kid of being He-Man. Uh, which when you think about his name, it's just pretty interesting. It's like a double man. It's like a pronoun and then a man. It's like He-Man, you know, like multi- man squared. And, um, and clearly, as you can see, uh, my physique has turned out much like that of a He-Man. Uh, so you better take that down. I'm going to get in trouble. That uh, feels a little scandalous up there. Um, there. Listen, there's this innate sense in all of us that desires t- to be heroic. And even as we have read about all these characters and even look at the five others in uh, verse 32, there's a sense like maybe, maybe if I was listed among those, maybe if I could be that. The whole point of Hebrews 11 has not been to point to heroes. Has not been to encourage the writers of, uh, the readers or rather of Hebrews to think that these men are incredible. The whole point of this entire chapter was to point to the one hero. There is only one. And I grew up thinking that there was many and that maybe I could even be one, but there is one hero. And this is God's story, and He's the focus of all of these men and women faith. He is the one that birthed it. He's the one that gave it. He's also the one that strengthened it. And so as I look at this list, like many of the rest of you in verse 32, put back up uh, verse 32 for me. 
As I look at this list, like many of you have been wondering, like, where's my place? That's the whole point. There is no place for you and I on that list. It is God. He is the hero of the story. And so as I'm sitting up there on that roof, swinging my hammer away, thinking that I'm doing God a great justice by following him, I'm placing myself in the hero's position. When the hero's position only belongs to one, and that's him. And so man after man and woman after woman who have been presented in Hebrews is to draw all of us and all of our attention to the one hero, and that is God. That's why he ends this, he says, of David and Samuel and the prophets. And then he goes on here in verse 33 to say this. I love this. These people who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, speaking of Daniel here, quenched the power of fire. And by the way, this isn't in chronological order, which I really relate to. Because what I picture here is the writer of Hebrews, whoever he may be, He's just like getting so impassioned, he's just rolling it. And God's inspired, he's shooting from the hip a little bit. I love that, you know what I'm saying? I never ever do that, but every once in a while, right? That's what we see here. Like he lists up these five men, and these five men aren't even a part of some of these things. He just starts going on all these things that he has watched God do in the scripture. They've attained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war. All the five characters did that. Put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Both the prophets Elisha and Elijah resurrected uh, uh, sons of women. Verse uh, 35 there in the end. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Now, the writer does something really interesting in this section. He's making us And his readers draw into this point. Next slide. That there is a faith that is nurtured by victory. That somehow, even in his encouragement here, and certainly for these examples, what God did in providing victory over armies, or escaping fire, or resurrecting the dead, that God nurtured and strengthened, maybe even the fragile in faith, by victory. So, that's all great. That's their story. The prophets filled the Old Testament with things like this. But my question of you is next slide. How has your faith been nurtured by victory? This will seem like a strange story uh, and pertains of victory, but uh, one of the most pertinent that I've ever experienced, uh, one of the uh, folks that we had the the blessing of helping and serving in We Love St. Charles uh, was this couple that um, I found in the parking lot of our uh, previous uh, space. And I went down to them and, and I started talking to them and asked them to come up to my office. They were literally uh, sitting there in the lot because they were living in their car. And uh, so I brought them up in, in my office and like pretty soon I found out used to be addicted to heroin, with it, which I've now learned... Now, after several experiences, heroin is a horrible drug. Uh, They were now addicted to methadone, which is the drug you take to get off of heroin. And they were just, they were living in their car. Their families um, kicked them out. They had a son in the mix. These, it was like a 20 and 21 year old couple. Had a son in the mix that they had lost because they were recently in jail. And so they're sitting there, like sitting across from me. Well, my heart is like bouncing out of my, out of everything in me. 
And a lot of times I struggle with, and I would imagine some of you as well, thinking sometimes with your heart first instead of your head, you know? And I've learned in serving so many folks now through We Love St. Charles, like there's a balance, there's wisdom in service as well. But in that particular moment, I was all heart. I didn't care how much they wanted help, like I was going for it. And what soon started happening after we got them jobs and got them an apartment and furnished the apartment and I was paying for their methadone treatments out of ignorance, I was feeding their addiction, not knowing it. Methadone was a more powerful drug in that moment than heroin ever was in their past. It's a legal drug. You go get it by medication, and the thought is over time the heroin weeds out, and then you can get off methadone, but not them. I was paying for that. And what I started to see happen towards the end is I had put my, myself in the place of Jesus. I was trying to save their lives. And I thought I could, if I funnel enough money, enough love, get enough people involved in this, I can truly see their lives completely changed, morphed. So you're like, uh, how has your faith been nurtured by victory? Like, this sounds horrible. Yeah, it turned out horrible too. Uh, pretty soon, uh, the girl, though I had a deep affection for them, stole $800 from her workplace they both wound up in jail. They're still fighting the court system and still have no custody of their son. And so your question should be, well, where's the victory in that? And that's the point. The victory is what God was doing in here. How he showed me that I was trying to take the place of his son. How he broke me and said, listen, if you ever make service about you and your ability to save someone, you will completely distort the gospel. And so I walked out of that despairing moment of my life. And those of you guys who are around the situation, you know, I was hurting. I mean, I was messed up for a while. I was messed up with Heidi. I was like, I had invested so much in this couple. I walked out of that situation in victory because of how God had broke my heart again for his saving work. Seeing myself as a mere servant and him as the Savior. Are you with me? And I know, like many of us, have a heart to serve people, I hope, we're following Christ. But if we ever put ourselves in the place of the Savior, we are doing those who we are serving a great disjustice. Amen? So I walked out of that where my faith in Christ was so nurtured by the victory of a heart completely changed. My question is, how about you? As you think through all of your experience, all of your faith, all of your nurturing, when have been the, those victorious moments where all of a sudden you saw your strength and your faith, your trust in God growing? I want you to ponder that as we think on many other questions this evening. Next slide. He goes on to another section of the text, a little bit more disheartening section. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. Listen, there is this horrible perspective out there in our culture that Jesus and suffering don't mesh. They don't go together. You come to Christ, He hooks you up. You have faith in God, He blesses your life. And 
Blessing is certainly true. The question is, define the blessing. So by the writer listing out all of these horrible things that men and women of faith had to encounter in the Old Testament, the point that he makes is, next slide, is there is a faith that is nurtured and strengthened by suffering. That God even uses, come on, uses suffering in your life to strengthen your trust in Him. And as we've been going through Hebrews 11 and this journey through faith, what I've realized is this, is we don't see the suffering for what it is in the moment enough. We see it after it's over when it's easier. Three months past the suffering, the actual in-the-moment stuff. Then we're able to look back, oh, God was so faithful. But it's like Jesus said when the storm came on the boat and the disciples were there and they thought they were going to die because Jesus was sleeping and he asked them this question, where is your faith? Is it right here, right now? Is it present? I know it will be easy once I calm the storm to say, oh God, you are faithful. But what about right now? Am I still faithful even though there's a storm going on? What we saw in all these characters is certainly God isn't leaving or forsaking anyone in the midst of suffering. Are you with me? So it begs this question. Next slide. How has your faith been nurtured by suffering? I know many of you guys uh, come uh, from families uh, that have uh, gotten divorced. I know many of you guys know my story. The parents got divorced when I was 18 years old. And I want to take this slant on it. I grew up in a very Christian household. Uh, we were kind of the American dream kind of family. Uh, three kids all loved each other most of the time. Um, three uh, uh, kids who were very active in the community. Uh, myself and then a couple of cheerleaders, if you consider that an athlete. It's up to you. Discern that later. Um, uh, my parents were, uh, were seen in the community. They were known. That was a good business guy. My mom was a youth worker. We kind of had the, even though we didn't have a white picket fence, it felt like that. It felt like we were, like nothing could ever happen to the Sigma family, right? And then my parents got divorced. And I know for those of you that have went through divorce, you know this. Like it, it hurts in ways that you don't even know present. Listen, uh, my, my parents got divorced in 1998. Quick math, I'm not even sure what that is. 13, what, how many years is that? Someone help me? 13, 14 years. I will be paying for that divorce until I die. Every Christmas, every holiday, every family function, it's multiple homes, multiple households, a lot of chaos all the time. I love my family dearly. What I learned through all of that, as I saw like this picture in my mind of something that could never be shaken, that was my thought. Look at us. Like we're the sigmas, Right? We're all going to go to college, we're going to get our degree, we're going to go on, our parents love us, like, this, this just seems like the American, this seems perfect. And then all of a sudden it starts to shake you. And the thing I learned from that whole experience and am continuing to learn is life will be shaken, life will morph, life will change, life will shift, and at sometimes life will be incredibly painful, but that never, ever, ever changes who God is. And in the moments of my deep suffering and pain, and I remember phone calls from Janae specifically as I went to college. Janae was a a young girl, 12, 13 years old, calling me at school, suffering, struggling. 
I remember in those times, all I could do was point both of my sisters to the Lord. Listen, I know this is chaos, but He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. And as much as our family stuff seems like chaos, we can rest in God. Now, that all sounds nice, doesn't it? That all sounds great. I mean, that could be like the back of a book or something, like a, a, a forward to a novel. But then you find yourself in the storm, you find yourself in suffering. And it's in that moment that's revealed if you really believe that God can use suffering to nurture your faith. So the point of the writer here is that's exactly what happened for all these Old Testament saints. They were sawn in two. Suffered, struggled. And yet somehow through that suffering, God taught them to trust more. Do you see the thing about faith that's so intriguing to our culture? It makes no logical sense most of the time. And that's one of the greatest blessings of faith. Is faith takes logic and completely shifts it upside down. I mean, someone looks at this who has no idea who Christ is. Does that make any sense that there's nurturing and suffering? No. That's why when a non-believer, someone who doesn't believe is going through suffering, what are they saying? God, why me? Why are you doing this to me? Why me? And the Christian should be saying, God, what do you have to teach me? What can I learn from you? It's not why me, it's okay God, I understand it's me. You see what I'm saying? That's the difference. The poetic nature of the text moves on. In verse uh, 38 there at the end, in the highlighted for you all, verse 38 of whom the world was not worthy, interesting phrase, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Now why would he say this in verse 38 after a whole section on suffering? Look at the first line. Of whom the world was not worthy. Hold on a second. What was his previous point? The world was saying they weren't worthy. That's why they saw them in two. That's why they beheaded them. That's why they killed them. That's why they ostracized them. And so the writer of Hebrews says, no, 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 no. What faith does is it flips logic on its head. The reality is the world was not worthy of them, not them, not worthy of the world, you see. They were the ones, faith in God, trust in God, that not only had a leg up on the world, but the perspective that would save their life because of faith. Next slide. So he finishes this uh, chapter of Hebrews 11 by saying this, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. Uh, this, This should be the moment that the church just celebrates a little bit. His whole point in Hebrews has been what? The old covenant, the old economy, the law was necessary to show you in this room and everyone after Jesus that the new covenant, the gospel of Christ, who Jesus is, is way better than the old. So do you guys understand the point? He's talking about all the faith of these men and all that they suffered and the fact that they were sown in two, sown in two. And he says, they did that and you guys have something better. And yet your faith seems more fragile than theirs. That's his point. Men after man after man after woman after woman displaying 
their faith against all odds. And you have something that's better. You have Jesus. He, Jesus said, I have to go so I can send the Spirit. You have the Spirit as a believer that's inside of you. You have God inside of you. And he's saying if that doesn't shake your perspective of all that's happened in the old, maybe, just maybe, you'll see the consistent theme of the Bible, and that's that we're saved by grace through faith. Then he ends this whole section by saying that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. But what does he mean here? This seems somewhat interesting. Uh, the Greek word for perfect here is, is more complete. He's telling the saints, the Hebrews, the true believers, that you will be for the Old Testament saints the picture of what the new covenant can do. Of the power of Christ. How Christ can come in, birth faith in men and women, and completely change their life and perspective. Now, uh, it seems like this is the end. It is not. I have a lot of questions to ask you, a lot of things to wrestle with, and much more to say. This um, journey through Hebrews 11 has, uh, for me, completely changed my perspective. I have appreciated many of you for uh, coming during this uh, time, but I feel like it all ends in three things that each of us have to ask ourselves. Studying all these characters, spanning all this history, every single person in this room has to ask themselves, whether you're here for the first time or been here the whole journey, these three questions. The first is this. How do I know if I have faith in God? Seems like a pretty fair question, doesn't it? So many of you have come in this room, you're... You're asking yourself that right now. There have been uh, folks in here who, who have thought that they're Christians that, that maybe need to ask this question of themselves. To rehash their memory, to refocus them. How do I know that I truly have faith that who God is, is good, loving, and unchanging? Well, the first thing is this, uh, as the Bible says, it's faith in Jesus. Seems elementary, but it's true. Romans 10 verse 9 says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Listen, we can never say enough in our context and culture, Jesus is the only way. There is no other way. That's it. Jesus. Faith in Jesus. Trust that Jesus wasn't a man or just a teacher or just a prophet or that it was some man bleeding on a cross. That it was a God-man sent from God to live perfectly on this earth. And his blood shed on a suffering cross was to atone, appease God's wrath, take away our sins in love. And that's what the cross did. Jesus took on the wrath that should have been on us. And so belief in Jesus, confession of that belief with your mouth, out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks, Scripture says. Then the uh, Bible says you're saved. Verse 10 for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So your first question is, do I believe in Jesus? Jesus, Lord, Savior. Am I following Him? Am I a disciple of Him? Is He my voice of reason? Is who the person of Christ is, the person I turn to in times of suffering or trial? Faith, trust in Him. Now the second thing, and important, that's often left out, next 
is that faith is evidenced then by works. So just so no one gets confused, I'm not saying that works save you. I can swing that hammer on the roof all day long and it means nothing in terms of my faith. Are you with me? And many of you have even used the terms of good Samaritans that they're good people. No one is good apart from Christ, I believe. Scripture says we're born into sin. So here's what uh, James 2 says, the famous passage. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled. And I picture like someone comes in and say, that, say they need some help, and we just like pat them on the back, you know? Oh, hey, it's all good. We're going to pray for you. Uh, sometimes we're going to pray for you is the, Christian, um, is the Christian excuse. I don't want to talk to you anymore. I'm going to say some nice pleasantry, and I'm never going to do what I say. Listen, just so, this is a blanket commercial break. Don't say you're going to pray for someone if you're not. Please, stop it. Please. Right? That's what he's saying. Like, if, a, if someone comes and you just, like, pat them on the back, say it's all good. No. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is completely dead. Now, we have seen this picture in the scripture. In fact, James 2 talks about Rahab the prostitute that we studied last week. If Rahab the prostitute would have just said, God, you're good. Remember what she tells the spies? Your God is the God of heaven and earth. If she just would have said that, would have been mouth. But never lived anything. Never really experienced her faith. Then it would have just been lip service. And that is certainly an epidemic in our culture. A bunch of lip service, nice pleasantries, communicate things, follow the laws. No, but her faith and is evidenced by what she does. She helps the spies. She puts the scarlet rope out. Her faith is lived out. So if you're here and you're like, how do I know that I believe in, in God? How do I know that I have faith? Belief that Jesus is the only way, that he's your Lord of your life, that his blood atoned for your sins, that he walked out of a tomb that he's living, that he's not some person in a tomb somewhere that the church comes together to sing about. You believe he is that God-man, and your life evidences your faith in him, following him and him alone. And the phrase that we used uh, to encapsulate this back in the day when we were teaching this is God-or. The scripture says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, that where your heart is, there's your treasure. This is a tough question to ask. Is your treasure God, period? Or something else filling that blank, and that's really your treasure right now? See what I'm saying? We've convinced ourselves that faith is the fact that we can live these two lives. But you remember in our journey, two lives is one too many. It's God or. So Mark, are you saying that we're going to be perfect? Definitely not. That's why grace is so awesome, amen? I will fail. I will struggle. But I'm not going to go on sinning so grace may increase. God must be my treasure. That's faith in Jesus. I will struggle periodically over here at times dabbling with my flesh. But repentance quick, back to God, believing that He's my treasure. That's faith. So you're gauge tonight. And I'm not a judge of souls, nor should any of the rest of you be. Oh, you're a Christian, you're a Christian. No, God judges souls. It's to ask yourself, do you have faith in God? A second question is this. If I seem habitually inconsistent in my faith, what does that mean or reveal? 
part of the big journey of this Hebrews 11 has been watching these characters at times periodically struggling, but not incessant with manic bouts of obedience. There's been a consistency, a pattern of faith. So many of you don't relate to that. If you are habitually inconsistent in your faith, what does that mean to reveal? First thing, next slide. It means you aren't growing in your knowledge of God's character, and thus your love of God is shallow and immature. Agree or disagree? The more you learn about God's character from His Word, the more as a believer you will trust in who He is. You disconnect yourself from God's Word, that faith is lacking in maturity, and your love of God cannot deepen because it's all based on experience. But that's where many of you are living your life and your faith. It's all experience. So you'll walk out of this tonight and you'll say, oh, that was a good service or that was a bad service. You'll gauge your relationship with God based on the service that was provided for you and not the inerrancy of the Scripture that can be before you every minute of every day. You see what I'm saying? The, the Scripture is written on your heart, right? So that's the first thing. An inconsistent faith reveals a, a, a heart that, that isn't completely consumed with the character of God. Uh, next slide. It also reveals that your faith is dependent upon what it requires. It's a phrase that we learned uh, several weeks ago in our journey through Hebrews 11. If your faith is inconsistent right now, that means you come to moments where it requires a little bit more, a little bit more sacrifice, a little bit more suffering, a little bit more resource. The rich young man, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Sell all you got and give it to the poor and come follow me. And he went away, what, saddened. Why? Because faith required much at that moment. Inconsistent. He told Jesus, look, I've done all that you asked me to do. No, no, no. Do one more thing. Right? So many of you guys, your faith looks great until all of a sudden it costs you your life. And I'm pretty sure that that's the mantra of the entire Bible. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Last question I want to ask you guys. If I'm struggling to let go and trust God over something in my past, a a sin issue in the present, or an impossible calling on my life for the future, what can I do? This is where most of you are at tonight. Still struggling with some shame, regret, something from the past? You haven't fully trusted that God could forgive you for that. It could be a litany of things. There's many of you holding on to memories from your past that you just you can't let go. Others of you know full well that you're called to something that seems impossible, but you're unwilling at this moment just to trust, believe. I know that so many of you through this whole journey have been at that crux. I've already heard stories of people who have been changed by the gospel in terms of this. But all of us should be asking the, the what can we do? I love this. Next slide. Philippians 4 says, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And look at the answer here. And the peace of God. Because that's the issue, isn't it? I don't want to let go of it because I think that I can find peace somewhere else. Or I'm even finding contentment in my lack of peace. What can I do? You can pray. 
And I love that the answers in the scripture are so elementary. And you know why they're so elementary? Because God knows where we will struggle. You're trying to trust and let go, and yet you're spending no time wearing out the carpet next to your bed in prayer. Oh, I really want to let this go. I'm struggling so much. And all you do is talk to everyone about it. You spend way more time talking to others, thinking that they're going to encourage you, which certainly the church is there for that. Well, all the while, not going to God, who is the true comforter? Listen, you know when you spend times in prayer, you will find way, way, way more comfort from Him than you will a nice pat on the back from another Christian. This is nice, don't get me wrong. But the words of the Scripture and communion with God are way better. So He says this here at the end. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So what's the promise? You pray... Peace will come, and then your heart and your mind will be guarded against what? The memories, the doubt, the lack of trust. God, I don't, I don't want to go. This is impossible. No, no, no. You don't get it. Seek me. Find me. And then you'll see all the impossible things I can do that he already listed in Hebrews chapter 11. So I sit back from all this in this chapter, and I feel like, I need to respond somehow. Right now, in your seats, uh, right in front of you, or under your seats, there's a little card. I want you guys to get that card out if you could. In front of your seats, or if there's not a seat in front of you, there's a card underneath you. There's also a pen uh, in some of the seats in front of you, or might be a pen in your purse. Everyone have one. Now, we come to the end of a chapter like this. And I feel like we're forced to answer the question, like how will we respond? Okay, all this talk is great about faith and all. But what do we just read? Faith leads to action. There has to be some kind of response. And and I'm not saying that everyone here in this room will have a response to this chapter, but I certainly want to give you an opportunity to do that. Next slide. So I've asked you if there's something on this card that's stirring in you, that you would circle all that apply. The first one is this. I don't think I have faith in God, but I want to. Listen. Next week, we're doing a baptism service here. There's several folks who are already ready to be baptized, and I'm guessing there are some here tonight, right now, who are like, listen, I've been coming for three, four weeks, or maybe just tonight. I've been trusting in myself, no belief in Christ, but I desire to believe in Jesus. I long for that. I want to know more about him. I'm committing right now that if you write that down, if you're the one that circles that, that I am personally going to set up a time with those folks to meet, to teach, and encourage in the next several days. We take salvation serious here, amen. We should. And faith begins somewhere, and that's where it begins. Listen, God, I'm yours. You're everything. I know I've been running from you. I'm tired of just sitting in my own sin, so if that's you, circle that. The second thing is, I don't think I'm growing in my faith, but I want to. 
The image that I have is after a long winter, if you've ever had an above ground pool and you go to uncover it that first time, the smell of the stagnant water. And that's exactly where some of you are at right now. Stagnant. Dormant. It's been like, you've been like hibernating. Right? And this whole journey, like your heart's kind of been stirred, but you're still wondering like, yeah, but, but what do I do? Listen, if you circle this, I'm telling you right now, a pastor of this church is going to go through and pray over every single one of these cards with these names on it. And that may seem insignificant for you, but what do we just see in Philippians 4? Pray. Pray that God will do something. Pray that God will move. Because we can stand here all we want, give each other a high five and say, listen, go be faithful. But you and I both know God has to do the work. So circle that. And lastly, there's a situation in my life that is requiring me to have faith in God's ability and I'm struggling to trust. This is those of you who are struggling letting go, who have a sin issue, a memory, a, something that you're, you're unwilling to adhere to and God's calling you to it. Again, similar. If you're willing to respond in that way, I'm telling you right now, you will be specifically by name prayed for. So in this moment to respond, as God... Uh, causes a stirring on your heart. At some point in this time of worship, we have these tables with this cup that we've used as an image this whole journey to represent us and faith. I would just ask you to come and put those cards on one of these tables. And, and this walk, yeah, it may be fearful. Like, I'm afraid to admit this. I'm afraid to confess this. I... I have acted like I have it all together, but honestly, I'm really struggling. So I know that there's a lot of gumption in doing that. But listen, listen, listen. What if God truly came and strengthened the faith of the people in this room? All of us. What could happen? What impossible could soon become possible? What calling could now become realized. So as you think and pray about where you're at in this, I just want to pray over you guys. God, I ask um, as we end this journey, which we're thankful for, you will help my brothers and sisters realize where they're at. You would give us a heart of confession and repentance we would desire, God, to have faith in you. And I pray specifically now for the folks in this room who, who have never believed in you. And I ask by your power that you would be gracious on their life. And that you would show them the depth of your love for them. And for the rest of us, God, I pray for the strength and the courage to hang on your every word. Let's stand and respond.